0: So uh, we continue today in our series called Stay Out. Two weeks ago, we talked about food. Last week, we talked about entertainment, which by the way, when we're just on entertainment, some of you left and you thought to yourself, or maybe you jokingly said something to a spouse, man, I got some stuff to get rid of, or man, I should really delete that. And then you went home and you didn't do anything. If you know there's something you gotta weed out of your life, just do it. Just do it, right? Okay, stop, we're done with entertainment now. Now we get to talk about money. We're gonna start by just asking everybody just pull out your wallets, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Today we talk about, and it was gonna say, stay out of my wallet, but you know, some of you got like money clips and bags and purses and merces and satchels and all this stuff. So, so stay out of my budget, that's what we titled this. Now, most pastors, they, just, they don't like to talk about money. And I say most pastors, most pastors, um, because I got a, a picture of some people up here who do it all the time. And one of the reasons why most pastors don't like doing it is because of how wounded so many people are by what these kinds of people have to say about money. That's Joel Osteen, that's Ken Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Paula White, Benny Hinn, among many, many others that we could list. These people teach, among many others, what we call the prosperity gospel, give to us and you will be healthy, you will be wealthy, you will be more comfortable, your kid will get into that school, your great aunt will heal from her cancer, dot, dot, dot. We don't teach that here. And it's trying to communicate just my own distaste for what they represent, and John Piper does it so much better. So I'm going to read what he had to say. He was speaking to a group of several thousand college students, and and John Piper, a former pastor, he said, I don't know what you feel about the prosperity gospel, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, but I'll tell you what I feel about it hatred. It is not the gospel and it's being exported from this country to Africa and Asia, selling a bill of goods to the poorest of the poor. Believe this message, and your pigs will not die. Your wife will not miscarry. You'll have rings on your fingers and coats on your back. That's coming out of America. The people that ought to be giving our money, our time, and our lives, instead selling them a bunch of crap called gospel. It's the only time I ever heard him use that four-letter word in a sermon. That wasn't me saying it. That was him saying it but we got to talk about money. Bible talks about prayer and faith some 500 times. It talks about money some 2000 times, we got to talk about it. And for a lot of us, we are so reserved about money because the truth is, and we'll get into this a little bit later, there's no quicker way to identify what you love than by looking at your budget. There's just no quicker way. And that's why most of us just want our budgets to be very, very private things. We don't want other people knowing about our money because then they get to see our hearts. We don't want God involved because then I gotta make a change. But we gotta talk about money. And ultimately, the goal is joy. Please hear that. Ultimately, the goal is that we would look, love, and live like Jesus. And so... One more thing. A friend sent me this week a video, um, a testimony of the, the company Barnhart, the president, founder, his wife. He summarized the entire teaching of the Bible on money in two points, which I just, concise and profound. I loved it, so I'll share it. He says one, figure out what God wants you to do with this stuff, two, fear wealth. It's like, wow, yeah. That pretty much summarizes what Jesus has to say about money. Figure out what God wants you to do with this stuff. Fear wealth. For the last century, this probably hasn't been the best description of the average American or Christian American's posture towards money. So after World War II, consumerism and materialism just skyrocketed because all of a sudden, we were the wealthy nation. We were fabricating a lot of stuff. And so our home's filled with things. Americans grew in their wealth. But what happened to generosity? What happened to the Christians called a steward their things? His things. Well, a lot of things went up in our lives. A lot of things went up between 1950 and now. We travel a lot more and we spend a lot more money on our travel. We eat out significantly more. And when we do so, we spend way more than we used to. We spend far more money on our vanity, on our beauty, on our clothing than we used to. We spend more money on sports and recreation, both doing it ourselves and consuming it via entertainment. We spend a lot of money on homes. And I can just hear, you know, the Gen Z millennials on TikToks complaining about how much worse we have it than people 70 years ago. But homes today are three times larger. Okay, Go buy a house that's 900 square feet. Don't put a fridge or a TV. Don't carry a computer in your pocket. Live their lifestyle and see if it's actually more expensive for you than it was for them. No. We just have a lot more. And in the home that today is on average three times larger than it was 70 years ago, we have a lot more stuff to fill that home with. But a lot less people to fill it with. In fact, the average home has half as many children as it did 70 years ago. And what has happened to our generosity? Well, it's gone down. Jason Wall shared this stat last year. Great Depression, the average giving was 3.3%. Now it hovers closer to two and a half. And so here's a strange reality. Check this out. This is just, if God plucked you from 2023 and placed you in 1950, on average, you would have far less wealth, far less space, way less entertainment, less, I'm sorry, more people to care for, and you'd be giving more of your money away. Isn't that backwards? Isn't that weird to think about? You, in your role, in your life right now, 70 years ago, would have way less and give way more. There's just something backwards about that. And so we're going to ask today, like, what does God have to, what does God have to say about money? Because ultimately, like, we're not here to say we need your money. My goal today is for you to realize God wants your heart. And it just so happens that God wired you for your heart to follow your money. So we want to ask the question, like, what does God have to say about our money? And I have one point, I'm sorry, three points in one sentence. This is what we're going to talk about today. We give God's money. It's his. For treasure and transformation, that's ours. We're going to talk about our treasure, our transformation. But ultimately we do so in pursuit of his mission, his mission. These are our three points that we're going to go through today. First, we give God's money. Deuteronomy 10 says the heavens, indeed the highest heavens, belong to the Lord your God as does the earth and everything in it. It's all his most of you nod your head. You're like, okay, yes, I know that. I know that. First Corinthians four. For who makes you so superior? What, who makes you so superior? What do you have that you didn't receive? If in fact you did receive it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? Everything that we have is a gift from God, and thus we are receivers. And so today, in your life, you have a bunch of things because you receive from God a set of talents and skills exercised through an energy or ethos that you receive from God, ultimately receiving money or income or a paycheck from your creator, from, from the giver of good things. We are receivers. And so we got to understand both. He is a giver. We are receivers. And you hear that, and so many people within the church would, with, with, well, no duh. But here's the thing. We don't stop there. For many of us, it's no duh, but... No thank you. Now, virtually every single person in this room has some area in your life, myself included, in which we do this. No duh, but no thank you. I have four children, one on the way, and we try to be as diligent as we can with screens. Let me just say, like what a parent does in restricting screens is very different when you have less than two children and more than two children. It just is. If I had a nickel for every time I said I will never as a parent before I had kids or only had one kid, man. And we went back on it. We try to be diligent, but you know, there are days. There are days in which we stretch that. And you might say, well, Zach, you know what the research says? I mean, a two-year-old spending an, spending an hour front of the TV, you know, watching Minnow, which is a Christian, a Christian app. Check it out if you haven't. And I said, no, dub, but today, no, thank you. For some of you, you leave the dentist cavities or your kids have cavities and no more juice, no more soda. <laughs> no, dub, but no, thank you. Last week I talked about sleep. You put a phone or a TV in your bedroom, it's going to hurt your sleep and your sex life. But a lot of you Probably still have a TV or a cell phone in your bedroom. No duh, but no thank you. I'm not judging you. I'm just saying all of us have something. And some of you love to have that cup of coffee at 4 or 5 p.m. Even though you feel sleep fine, the quality will drop quite a bit. No duh, but no thank you. For a lot of us, in fact, for nearly every one of us at some point in our lives, we've also treated this that way. It's all God's, no duh, but no thank you. Here's a test, thought experiment, check it out. To see if you truly believe and act like all that you have is God's. And I wrestled my own life through all of this first, by the way. I'm only here to make anyone as uncomfortable as God has made me. If you present your budget to God, to receive your household income. If you had to present, if you had to go before Jesus in a budget meeting, say, Lord, I need this 45 grand, this 85 grand, this 145 grand, you know, my yearly, whatever you live off of, this is what what I need. And you went before God to, to bring that to him. Would you feel comfortable pointing Jesus to your lifestyle to justify that income? You know, I could like one of the cherubim kind of raising their hand from the back. Mortgage seems a little high, and you're like, no, no, no. no. We host a bunch of people. Like these are all the things we do in our space. That's not for us. That's for the kingdom. Okay, okay. All right, maybe another angel off to the side. That's a big food budget. Yeah, but we're making meals. We have people in our home all the time. Okay, okay. Whatever it is. Would you feel comfortable using your lifestyle to say, God, this is why we need the money. And if you say yes, fantastic. If, you, if you, part of that would make you uncomfortable, then it's an indicator that there's an area of your life in which you're probably not acting as if the money belongs to God. Now, I want to be really clear before we go to our next point. One of the roles of money is for you to enjoy God's gifts. I'm not out to tell you, you gotta live in mud huts. God wants you to enjoy things and in so doing, enjoy him. You're not gonna find anything in the New Testament that encourages a lavish or luxurious lifestyle, but we do see in scripture that God wants to bless and he wants us to enjoy him through his creation. What we're after is the balance between how much we keep to do that and how much we steward in a different direction. And there's gotta be a little tension there if we're honest with ourselves. So number one, we give what's his, we give what's his. Two, for treasure and transformation. Matthew 6, 19, it says this. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. First Timothy 6, 19, he addresses, he says, people with money share, and when you do, you store up treasure for yourself in heaven. This is the theme all throughout throughout the New Testament. I was talking with somebody about it this week. They're like, Zach, that just feels weird. Like give money away in order to have treasure in heaven. It sounds like an eternal prosperity gospel. And I said, yes, it is. It's a biblical prosperity gospel. You don't give now so that you get a bunch now. I'm sorry, your life might get worse. You give now knowing that there's treasure for you in heaven. That's what Jesus has to say about our money. But it doesn't work the way your retirement plans work. You see, because when you invest money in a 401k or whatever, you know, you put a certain amount in and the stock market does its thing and it's not a terrible year, you know, it goes to whatever. And then you put, but if you put in less, it'll be less. But you're working with raw dollar amounts. That's not how God works. That's not how God's economy operates. And in Mark 12, Jesus makes that really clear because he points out a widow. And this widow comes up and she drops in two coins. And Jesus points out, everybody here, given 10% out of your abundance, she gave way more. Why? Because she gave out of her poverty. God's economy is different. You might be struggling right now. I wanna talk to the people who are just paycheck to paycheck, not because your life is saturated with poor financial decisions, but you're working hard and you're scraping by. And you may pinch pennies for a time, for weeks or for months and set something aside just to do something kind of nice for you or your spouse or your family, a treat that for most middle-class Americans is just very normal, maybe a dinner out, you save up money for six months, and you just want to get your hair done nice. Only for someone in your circle, a friend or family member, to have a really big need. Let me tell you something. People who know what it's like to be desperate and in need tend to act very quickly to meet those needs in others, they just do. And I've seen that as I've lived in some of the poorest parts, spent time in some of the poorest parts of the world. And I've seen it even when we had our first kid. Most of our friends didn't have kids, but the only people that brought us a meal were people with kids. The people with the least amount of time and the least amount of money are the ones that brought meals. Why? Because they know what it's like! But to you, who finds yourself in that position, and you give out of your poverty. Jesus, you need to hear this if you're the one struggling and scraping by, that Jesus offers this as an encouragement to you. Your treasure's in heaven and you may not see it for decades, but your treasure is real and it's in heaven. But the flip side of that coin is a sad reality that I was confronted with this week. That the average 21st century American Christian If everything Jesus and Paul has to say here is true, the average 21st century American Christian will probably be one of the poorest people in heaven. A lot of them will be really surprised because they spent their lives giving 10%. Now, we're all gonna be in heaven. Like that's a perk. That's a pro. I don't know if that means your driveway's only 2% or a two karat gold and there's a 15. I don't know. In in seriousness though, we see with the way they talk about the different levels of reward people get, that it might have to do with a role and responsibility, where it is that you're staying, the stuff that you have, the joy and satisfaction that you experience. But it's real, it's real. And for different people, it's gonna be different. And it doesn't have to be that way. 21st century American Christians living in abundance do not have to show up to heaven to poverty. And it's weird saying it's poverty because you'll be in heaven. But we give, we give why? For, for treasure, not just for treasure, but what does the word say? It says it transforms, it transforms hearts. Why? Because hearts follow treasure. We don't just give because of the reward it stores up for us in heaven, but because of what it does to our affections in the present. You put a ton of money in a stock, you care about the company. You pour a ton of money into a missionary, you follow, them, you, you, follow you care for that missionary. You put a ton of money into a college, and to your kid going to college, you probably care more about the grades. Because your heart follows your treasure. And so we got to realize that giving, it recalibrates our affections. It changes our hopes. It aligns our, our trust and identity with our maker. Whereas wealth tends to pull us away from those things. Which is why Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And around a thousand years ago, someone kind of made up the idea that eye of a needle was a special gate in Jerusalem. That's nonsense. He's talking about an actual eye of a needle. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus goes on to say, with man, not all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. But this is why... We're supposed to be cautious about what we let money do to us. God never says don't make a lot of money. The danger, church family, is in keeping it. I believe that's what's coming across and what Jesus has to say. So one, we are called to give what's God's for treasure and for transformation. But finally, we do so in pursuit of his mission. And I have three things for us to consider. That mission includes the mission of the church. In 2 Corinthians 8, verses one through three, he says, we want you to know brothers and sisters about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia during a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord. This is one of many, many pictures given to us in the New Testament of partnerships in ministry and mission, a financial partnership. It's one of the things that we give to. And yes, we give to the church. For many of us, most of that giving goes to the church, but we have partnerships outside of that. We support missionaries. We have local nonprofits. Some of you have invested in Crew or InterVarsity, Berea, the camp that we partner with. And so we, we we're called to give to the ministry and the mission of the church. But not just the church. I would say we're meant to be generous to our community. The people we run into, Hebrews 13, don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Proverbs said, whoever le- gives to the poor lends to the Lord. I think some of us grew up with this, with this checkbox in our head of 10%. We give 10% to the church, which, by the way, is a fantastic, I think, principle just in general for giving, but then we find ourselves kind of in ignoring the other needs that we might come across because, well, I was generous already. And for some people in their abundance, that 10% is an excuse to give not very much, In fact, you you take someone who makes $200,000 and they might as well be an atheist that makes $180,000. That's not how generosity was meant to be. Like 10% isn't meant to be a luxury tax. We're called to be a generous people to model the generosity of our God. This includes the people we run into in our neighborhood, in our family and friends. But this also includes our own home. I'd like to give you, some of you may not have thought about this before, and especially if you're a parent, I want you to listen to this. I think this is important. Proverbs 22.6, to start a youth out on his way, even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. What does that have to do with money? Let me tell you. We live in a world in which our kids are surrounded by, and constantly, their view is constantly saturated with things saying, Buy me. Buy me, buy me. Even if you avoid a store for all your life, the magazines will find their way to your home. I've learned this. Stupid Lego magazines. (laughs) Buy me. Kids need to be discipled on what generosity and stewardship looks like. And at some point, I would encourage every single parent in this room, at some point, probably when your kid is in their mid to late teens, when they're mature enough to understand, for you to open up your budget and show them what you love. Walk them through the line items of your budget and show them what you love. So they see that your money is where your mouth is. Our kids need this. Because I can't tell you how many of them go off to college and when they walk away from the church, one of the biggest complaints is hypocrites. Show them. And help them to flex that muscle as they watch you flex it yourself. That's called discipleship. And I've sat down with countless people in this church and just opened up my budget and just walked people through it to try to disciple people. If you want to bring me your budget, I'll show you mine and I'll go through line item by line item. I'm happy to do that. I don't have anything to hide, but we can do that. And it's important as we disciple people. But parents, you got to at least do it for your kids. As they go out into a world that just says, buy me, buy me, buy me. I want to close by sharing a little bit of my own story. And I do this very specifically because... I had a fear coming into this sermon that there would be people in the room who see this as, you know, I'm pointing to this mountain called generosity that's intimidating and uncomfortable, and I'm over here sipping lemonade with my feet up saying, go climb it, whereas pastors are supposed to be the ones charging saying, come with me. And so I, I want you to know where my heart's at and where it's been. My very first year of marriage, 2010 to 2011 was the highest year uh, household income of my married life, my adult life, okay? Not only was it the highest household income we ever had, it was the lowest in percentage of giving. Some irony there. The only reason we gave 10% we did faithfully to our church is because that was a habit my wife had built. Because I would come to the equation with, but look at all these student loans. Or, but look at this giant car payment. Or, but look at this and this and this. And my wife would say, it's not ours, it's his. So we gave 10%. When we moved to Mexico in 2011, we were there till 2014. We led a number of missions trips around the world and did a bunch of stuff down in Mexico. Our budget dropped significantly. We lived off $1,000 a month. And so from that, of that $1,000, we would send 50 back to our home church, and we would give 50 to our local Mexican church that we attended. That was our tithe. But our percentage of giving came up because we were surrounded by people with needs far greater than our own. And we would give as it popped up. We would have giving nights in which some people from the community would, who had crisis come up would, would present them. And then I'd watch as people far poorer than me sacrificed to give way more because they knew what it was to need. And so even though we had far less, the percentage of our giving actually went up after 10% to the church and then meeting those needs. In 2014, we moved to Boston. We were there. That's my firstborn. He's seven now. We were there until 2018. And we scraped by. I was in grad school at the time. My wife worked as a nanny. I would have two to three part-time jobs. We generally lived off of between $30,000 and $40,000 a year on North Shore, Boston. So we scraped by. We always gave 10% to the church, though. That was just a non-negotiable, which means that we didn't do other things. You know what date night is for a poor grad student? We did this, we did this probably at least 100 times. We, we would go out and we would get our phones and we had the app Kicks. And it's an app that you go around and you scan things in the mall. And so for 90 minutes, we'd walk around and we'd talk. You know, it was a date, walking and talking, getting our steps in, and we scan things. And for every time you scan something that it sends you to, you get a few cents. And then after 60 to 90 minutes, if we did it just right, hopefully, we'd be able to afford a small drink at Starbucks. And so we'd end our night at Starbucks sharing a small drink together. Now, I don't say that to say, woe well, was me. We had a blast and we got to be generous and it was worth it. We were blessed to give and we had so much joy in what we received. But that's what life looked like then. And I'll tell you, I was so surprised when we were in Boston, when our church, the leadership decided to send out a letter to the top 10% of givers in the church. And we got one. We were easily in the bottom 10 or 20% of households in the church. We were surrounded by wealth, giant homes, big, nice new cars. We were surrounded by it. And I know the church meant it as an encouragement, but I grieved a little bit. How in the world is the poor grad student working multiple jobs whose wife is making less than minimum wage, how are we in the top 10%? It's backwards. But it didn't have to, it wasn't because we were giving so much. Somehow others just weren't, were giving so little. It's just backwards. In 2018, we moved here, GBC. You tell one of my kids wasn't happy (laughs) that day. It was around this time I heard John Piper, I'll mention him again, share a sermon on generosity and it it really, really hit me in an uncomfortable way. And so if if you walk away from this and there's nothing about it that is convicting or uncomfortable, you can go watch his sermon and hopefully that works. Um, But he said two things. He said, if you're middle class, and in a a, a country as wealthy as America, and you're not giving at least 10%, you're probably robbing God. And then he went on to say, in the Old Testament, the question is how much do I give? But in the New Testament, and this is just so true if you study it, the question is now, how much dare I keep? And we wrestled with that. And so here we are in 2020, looking to buy a house. And we go to the bank and yes, this is COVID year. We bought our house during COVID year. We closed in that March. We went to the bank and they said, this is how much you can spend on a mortgage payment. They looked at our financials and said, this is how much you spent. And we're like, yeah, if we didn't give anything, because they don't factor that in. But we had decided we were gonna set generosity aside. We're not gonna touch that. And if that means a significantly smaller house or a cheaper property, then that's what we get. Because that's first, and that's what we did. And man, God gave us exactly what we needed. It's beautiful. And what do we do now? Well, my encouragement to you, i will just say this. We, we give, and we have automatic withdrawal every month. We give at least 10% to the church. This year, we'll probably give somewhere between 13 and 15% of our money pre-tax. I'm not saying that's what you need to do. I'm saying that's, that's, that's about what, what we're going to end up giving this year. Whenever I speak somewhere, 10% goes to the church and another 15 to 20% goes to a missionary. And then we store the rest for our, uh, our house fund because we got projects to do. The Lord keeps giving us children and they need a place to sleep apparently. When the tax refund comes, we give 10% to the church. We give a big chunk to a missionary and then we put the rest in a house fund. I'm sharing this with you because our house has so much joy in the giving. There's so much joy. And it saddens me that so many Americans don't know that joy because they merely give what's left over. And so my encouragement to you, get alone with God. If you're married, get alone with God and the spouse. And heck, if you don't have a lot or if you have a ton of debt, the first question is, Lord, how much do you want us to give? And you seek peace. But if you have a lot and you know if that's you, if you have a lot and don't blame your mortgage payment because if you bought a house that was way too big and you know the Holy Spirit's telling you it was too big, then sell it. But if you, have ab- if you were in abundance, the first question can be, God, how much of this are you okay with me spending on me? That's a fair question. Lord, how much of this, of your money, are you good with me delighting in so that I might delight in you? That's good. And then whatever the rest is, give it away. It might be 10%. It might be 20%. It might be 30%. Give it away. And man, you're going to have treasure in heaven. And I hope that, you know, 10% is a great starting point for the church, but a lot of the money you give away may be to other places. That's great. But what if we were a people who weren't so consumed by things, by stuff, by space? What if we saw the money God gave us really as his money to give for the treasure that we have in heaven and the transformation of our hearts in the present and pursuit of his mission to bring the gospel to the world and disciple the nations. That's the role that we need to see money in. And so say that prayer. If there's a change you need to make, make that change. Me and my wife try to do it once a year as we think through, okay, how does this change? Some of you haven't done it in a few years. Do it today. But I encourage you, man, the blessing is there. The treasure can be yours and God wants your heart. So don't get in your own way. It's just so much joy to be had. And again, if you want discipleship in this area, I'm happy to meet with you and show my cards. I don't have anything to hide. Pray with me. God, would you bring challenge and encouragement, Lord, not just in our budgets and our money, but in the way that we think of our calendar and the way that we think of our space and the way that we think of our stuff and just, Lord, help us to love and honor you and glorify you with all of the things that you've blessed us with. Help us, Lord, to realize when you've given us something to merely be an instrument for someone else to receive it. Help us, Lord, to realize when you've given us money to merely be an instrument for someone else to receive it. And Lord, give us discernment in enjoying the things you give us well, so well that you are the one that is ultimately enjoyed. God, help us to delight in all of these things in the way that we were designed. We praise you for you are good and you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen.